Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speaking to the leaders in their field and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. In today's episode, I'll be looking at the field of neuroimaging and microscopy, finding out how it has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, how researchers have, da- have adapted to continue their work safely, and looking into the discoveries that have been made this year, despite the limitations imposed by COVID-19. Joining me on today's episode to shed light on this topic is a recent addition to the Biotechniques Editorial Board and Director of the Neuroscience Microscopy Corps at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Michelle Itano. Michelle, it's great to have you on the podcast. So first, could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your institution? Definitely. So my name is Michelle Itano, and I'm at UNC Chapel Hill. I run the Neuroscience Microscopy Core Facility, which is housed in the Neuroscience Center, which is an interdisciplinary research center on campus. Um, My actual home department is the Department of Cell Biology and Physiology. And so... Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that COVID-19 has posed to the field of neuroimaging? Definitely. I know everybody has said an unprecedented time, and really we've never faced challenges quite like this before. Um, Initially, I think what everyone was dealing with was reduced access to facilities, including the research spaces and the microscopes, but also the animals and cell lines that people depend upon. And many of these techniques regularly require quite a bit of maintenance from the day-to-day to to even months or years. Um, So that was something many people were scrambling to deal with. Um, Now, as research has ramped back up on campus, it's more figuring out how to keep social distance and keep disinfection, especially for eyepieces and other routes of infection um, that might be relevant for microscopy. Okay, and and as director of the Neuroscience Centre Microscopy Corps, um, how have you tried to change that that department to overcome some of those challenges? Um, I suppose at the beginning, dealing with the the lack of access um, and the struggles with access to to the microscopes and the the cell lines and and the animal models. Um, And now now later on with reintroducing people back in with the, uh, the social distancing and the safety aspect of it. Um, one of the things we also did was move equipment to less crowded spaces. 
training for our users so that they know um, that and can feel comfortable doing their imaging work there. Um, we've also done a lot to move our trainings and uh, user support to virtual and remote procedures and have spent a fair amount of time doing some recording, but also synchronous screen sharing, um, phone calls, and uh, videos so that we can help people as they're at the microscope and analysis workstation. And are there any um, are there any aspects of imaging and neuroimaging that you can conduct remotely that um, that researchers can do from home at all? It's really pretty incredible what is able to be automated these days, and what a single person can do at a given workstation or microscope. So. Um, a trained user can come into our facility and essentially perform the same amount of imaging that they were doing previously, um, but access to our expert advice and troubleshooting requires now more of a Zoom call um, than just asking us for help um, around the corner. But it's amazing how much data we have been able to acquire, and we've found that actually the usage on our microscopes has not really gone down at this point in the pandemic, um, although fewer people may be standing at the microscope at any given point in time. Um, training new users, and we are a education um, an outreach-focused center as well is another part of what we do. And we have increased our protocols to include more consultation beforehand, as well as um, some synchronous sessions where the user can control the microscope screen um, through a program uh, virtually. And then we can switch and have both a camera present so we can see the user um, and the sample loading, but also screen sharing so that we can help make advice on exact image acquisition parameters um, live and synchronously while the user is there. Fantastic. Um, and do you have any key learnings from this period of time? Um, or advice that you would give to fellow core directors or lab leaders on keeping their labs running um, effectively and safely? I would say what's been amazing is actually how much the neuroimaging and microscopy core facility um, community has come together and really shared resources, um, has brainstormed together, and has made sure that nobody is reinventing the wheel by themselves. Um, many core facilities, especially for neuroscience, are operated by very small numbers of staff and sometimes a single staff member. Um, but we've had multiple um, amazing I don't know if they're, you'd call them workshops or conferences online with our virtual community where people have shared very specific things like which webcams have worked well for them to even uh, protocols that have worked well for disinfection and, um, and communication strategies and wording um, 
quizzes that they've given users, things like that. So I guess my advice would be really to reach out to the community and utilize many of these incredible resources we have, especially for neuroimaging, where there's been this really explosion of access to online techniques for both education at any level, but also research support and really incredible analysis softwares and acquisition open source tools that are being developed right now and are widely available to people um, if you're connected with the kind of more global community right now. Okay, and um, you've mentioned some of the projects that have been able to continue um, these collaborations helped along by your trained experts. Do you have any examples of um, any discoveries or of, of project successes that have occurred throughout this year, um, despite the limitations of, of COVID-19, um, that you're particularly excited about or that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, it's been um, kind of incredible. We, we do support a wide range of studies in our facility. And I'm really excited for all of the publications and data that's gone to new grants that have come out from users of our facility. Um, but some of the ones that are more recent that come to mind um, is some actual COVID research, which has been um, a big focus at UNC and, of course, worldwide. But we have a lot of coronavirus experts, longtime coronavirus researchers on campus who were really well poised to um, address COVID in this time. And they've been doing some imaging on our microscope. And what I have found to be really fascinating there is not only how open they've been with that and collaborative, but how many different people it has taken to contribute to that project. So there are the researchers themselves, but also other core facilities um, who are making these airway epithelial cell models to better um, better represent airway cells that are um, in the nose and nasal passages for people, and then people making viruses and fluorescently labeling them. And then we image them, and you can get these incredible images of these cells um, that are more similar to what's in the nose and see which cells are being infected and by how much virus and why these cells are not the ones next to them. And you can start really asking some very interesting questions about the infection route when all of these pieces of data come together. And so that's been um, very interesting to us um, just with the current time. But we also have a lot of ongoing studies that are really interested in all sorts of neurodevelopment and degeneration, as well as um, neuroprocesses like addiction and pain and learning. Um, and some of the ones that have come out from that um, that have been very interesting as well is research that is incorporated with um, some new findings of an autism-based project we have at UNC that has been longitudinal through our um, funded center that we also help to support uh, the investigators of called the IDDRC or the um, Carolina Institute for um, Developmental Disabilities. 
And this project called IBIS has taken babies that are siblings of those who were diagnosed with autism and have tracked them longitudinally in many different ways um, to see whether or not they end up with a diagnosis of autism or not. And this now decades-long group of parents, siblings at high risk um, and autism uh, patients has given us a lot of information about how to better understand um, autism and some of the um, behavioral effects and how to better possibly diagnose or predict um, which siblings or children may develop autism later in life. That's really fascinating. And and what what kind of techniques um, and newer neuroimaging techniques were were key to that IBEST study? So a lot of it has been historically MRI um, imaging um, and looking at some of the white matter in the brain um, and some patterns there that change dramatically during development for the babies. And then what we can do is look at the mouse models where we can affect things a little bit more specifically and see what we can replicate and what we see then um, happen in what we call the preclinical models. Um, there's also behavior that we can look at for both the um, patients themselves and their siblings, as well as some behavioral models we've developed for mice themselves on how they deal with different possibly anxiety-inducing environments, um, like the introduction of a stranger versus a known mouse or another object. Um, and all of that kind of helps us to under better understand um, how such a complex process is developing and affecting an individual. And um, and then going back to the um, the COVID studies that you've um, your core has been involved in, um, so looking at those airway epithelial cell um, organoids, I suppose they are those um, those cell models. Um, what kind of imaging techniques have been have been key to those studies, um, and how has your um, your core been able to assist in those studies? So one of the things that's been really important for those models is that. Um, relative to other cells, those cells are very tall, um, and how they are, um, their structure of them in what we call the 3D or the vertical space is very important, and that often can be what's compromised in many types of imaging methods. So we've utilized um, confocal microscopy and some of the more recent additions to enhance that type of microscopy, which includes both um, on the acquisition side, use of resonance scanning to make the scans go much faster, as well as post-processing with some denoising or deconvolution effects that we can do to get better resolution of the same data. And that allows us to get an idea of not only which cells are infected in relation to their neighboring cells, but how much fluorescent virus they're producing and even where that virus is located inside the single cells. Is it close to um, the upper layer where um, they may be encountering virus from the environment or more down 
towards the basal layer where it's interacting more with other cells. Um, and that gives us an indication of how possible cell-to-cell -cell transfer might be happening, um, as well as other routes of spread and viral replication. So it's important for us to both get the context for what's happening in the cell as well as between neighboring cells. And confocal microscopy, especially resonance scanning, um, has really helped us to get all of that information from large areas of these um, cellular um, cultures. And, uh, and what is it about resonance scanning that makes makes it particularly well suited to these kind of um, these kind of studies and studying that that space in three D? So what's nice about that development is confocal microscopy is able to get um, optical sectioning by moving a laser in a very um, controlled way across the sample, so that we're only illuminating the sample with a a single laser um, spot at a given point in time. And that gives us both high sensitivity, but also um, more control over the area that we're imaging. What the resonance scanning does is it affects how we're moving that laser. And so instead of scanning it in the more typical way using a galvanometer, um, we're able to use a resonance mirror, and that scans much, much faster. Um, and that allows us to cover greater areas, um, and that is literally the area of space, both in um, the vertical dimension to get detail from the top of the cell to the bottom, but also more neighboring cells in a given point in time so that our overall data set is much richer than it would be normally um, with standard scanning. Okay, brilliant. And and are there any um, any areas in neuroimaging and microscopy that you are particularly excited about at the moment? Any sort of rapidly developing areas or things that you think might be on the cusp um, of a new breakthrough? Uh, great question. There's there's so much happening right now, and I think you know there's a lot that could be spoken about about new techniques and the creativity that um, especially neuroscientists come up with to be able to image deeper, faster, um, bigger all the time. But right now, and especially in this COVID time, one of the things I've been really interested in is the image processing um, and what some of these artificial intelligence softwares are doing with uh, microscopy data and really large data sets and how this data handling is happening at uh, ways that really the human brain by itself um, can't intuitively see. And we require computers to really look deeper. And that's being done, I think, more efficiently and creatively um, than we've seen in the past. And the access to that is getting broader and broader. And I think as that happens, we'll see really this explosion of discovery where we have all of this data. And once we're able to really harness some of this machine learning, artificial intelligence, computational tools, we can really pull out even more detail from it than um, we've been able to in the past. Fantastic. And, uh, and finally, if you could ask for, for any one thing, um, so it could be literally anything from um, 
just funding or a sort of a fantasy technique or technology, um, what would it be uh, to continue making advances in neuro neuroimaging and um, and neuroimaging studies during this pandemic? So specifically about COVID nineteen. Oh wow, um, that's a great question. Um, I think for COVID nineteen right now. What I wish I kind of had a magic wand to do is to be able to really fund the core directors um, for these types of shared facilities. Um, normally, the staff are covered only by what we call recharge rates, which is um, the then translated to user usage fees. And that doesn't necessarily allow them to do more strategic planning and allow for greater projects like COVID, where um, you may need to develop completely new tools or policies and look into um, research on your own for days or weeks at a time. And I think if that were available to the community, that would really allow us to enhance um, far beyond what we currently can. And we could utilize the equipment we already have and some of that knowledge in a different way. If um, some of the more day-to-day -day work of the administration and the training and troubleshooting was covered by additional staff members. And then a few were really able to directly shift more flexibly to really strategic projects. Interesting. So it's not necessarily a um, sort of big, big leap or breakthrough in, in imaging techniques that you need. It's, it's more the, that support around the work that you're doing to enable you to be more forward thinking um, and proactive as opposed to, I assume, if issues like staffing are, are a problem than being more reactionary um, and having to deal with things on a short-term basis? Yeah, it's, it's been surprising. But as I've kind of entered this field, I've found that, you know, we already know so much, right? We have such incredible tools. We have incredible ideas, incredible software. What we don't necessarily have are the people to help other people utilize those. Um, and they don't necessarily have the time to really develop that um, so that all of these incredibly brilliant ideas and hardware and software can be utilized by a broader community. And I think that's really where the um, shared facilities can come in and their kind of shared um, interest and expertise in both education and research can really come to a highlight. And that's where I found we don't really have that many options for that type of funding. Um, it's really more for the discovery of the technique, but then who helps it to be used by another institution or um, by a new graduate student. And that's where I think if we had some more staffing for some of these um, and flexibility, we could really accelerate things to a greater degree because there already have been so many incredible ideas um, put out there. Brilliant, fantastic. Well, thank you for such um, for such an honest response to that question, and um, and also thank you for, for speaking to me today, um, Michelle. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. 
If you've been interested by the topics discussed and would like to find out more, you can check out the Biotechniques topic section on Neurosciences, live online, which contains many more materials on imaging, Alzheimer's and mental health, and is currently live at www.biotechniques.com. You can find previous episodes either on-site or on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching Talking Techniques. Thanks for listening, stay safe and goodbye.